I'm Karina Rockatel and this is the Weekly Wrap-Up. On Thursday, Victoria's opposition leader Michael O'Brien moved a motion of no confidence in Premier Daniel Andrews, which will be debated next month. To support the motion, you can go to noconfidence.com.au. This website gives a long list of reasons why it's come to this. The botched hotel quarantine program that caused the second wave. Lying to the parliamentary committee, claiming the ADF support was never offered to Victoria for hotel quarantine, contact tracing failures, the cuts to the public health team, making Victoria the nation's least resourced heading into the pandemic, imposing an arbitrary and potentially illegal curfew without the advice of the chief health officer, the public housing lockdown where residents weren't provided proper food or essential items, the failure to properly protect, frontline healthcare workers with appropriate PPE, the handling of the Cedar Meats cluster, lying about the virus modelling, supporting the harsh restrictions imposed on Victorians, setting virus suppression targets that world-leading scientists say are unduly onerous. And on top of all of this, risking Victorian and Australian sovereignty by signing us up to the to China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's unbelievable that a government has been able to get away with all of this so far. But the reality is that after Labor's landslide victory in Victoria at the last election, they are wielding their enormous power in unorthodox, non-transparent ways. They weren't allowing Parliament to sit. They didn't respond to numerous questions from the public, let alone the opposition. They've stretched the definition of democracy so far until for Victorians, it almost feels like we live under some kind of autocratic ruler where we have no voice, we're treated like children, where only government knows best and decisions about our rights, what time we can and can't leave our home, are seemingly arbitrary. But the chickens are finally coming home to roost for Andrews. And another class action was filed this week, this time by workers who lost their jobs following the lockdown. This case will argue that the Andrews government is liable for damages because its failed hotel quarantine led to the second wave and the introduction of stage four restrictions based on the findings of Victorian Department of Health and Human Services, Dr. Charles Alpern. Tony Carboni of Carboni Lawyers, who are representing the plaintiffs, said, all the people I'm representing for income loss are beside themselves. When we decided to launch this class action, it was out of that desperation for the people that don't know which way they're turning anymore. This is the third major lawsuit facing the Andrews government on top of the case of a cafe owner and a multi-billion dollar class action on behalf of businesses affected by the lockdown. But will it be the last? Now, on a much more positive note this week, history was made with peace deals brokered by President Trump entered into between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Joining me now is Senior Policy Analyst at the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, Jamie Himes. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks, Karina. Thanks for having me here today. And can you tell us a bit of background in relation to how this deal came about? It's a very momentous deal. I suppose a year ago, no one would have expected for these to happen and and two on the same day to be entered into. Uh, What it all means and the background there? Well, it's a potentially it's it's a tectonic shift in the way peace is um, negotiated in the Middle East. There was always this theory that before Israel could establish proper normalised relations with um with any of the Arab states, it would first need to establish peace with the Palestinians. Uh, And this deal has shown that not to be the case. But this has had 
quite a long lead-up time. Uh, Israel and some of the Gulf states, uh, especially the UAE, Bahrain, even the Saudi Arabians, um, had realised, the Gulf states had realised for quite some time that Israel was not their main enemy in the Middle East. Their main concern is with Iran. Iran is, has, as everyone knows, had its Islamic revolution back in 1979. And ever since then, one of the key tenets of this re revolution has been exporting the revolution. So to facilitate that, it's been stirring up trouble right through the Arab world. You know, um, it, obviously, um, it's sort of pretty much taken over Lebanon through Hezbollah. It stirred up the civil war in Yemen, which is a, a real point of concern for the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia because it's, you know, it's right next to them. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE have, have taken an active part in trying to restore the UN-recognised government to power in Yemen. Um, it's also, you know, it's got um, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and, and Hamas in Gaza. It controls a lot of the militia in Iraq that are making Iraq practically ungovernable. And when it looked for all the world like um, Bashar Assad's cruel regime was going to come to an end, it reinforced him with Hezbollah and various other Shiite militia, including from Afghanistan in other places, and made sure that he was able to hold on until the Russians came in with their air power. So, mm. you know, Iran's been paying, playing a very destabilising role in the Middle East, and Bahrain is a particular case because Bahrain has a Shiite majority, even though the rulers are Sunnis. So Iran has been trying to stir up trouble against the, the rulers of Bahrain through this majority, through the Shiite majority. So over time, the Gulf states have come to realise that Israel is not their enemy, that Iran is. And what has exacerbated this is that the US, over the past two presidential terms especially, or three if you include Barack Obama's two terms, has been gradually withdrawing from the Middle East. So the Gulf states always saw the US as their guarantor of security. Barack Obama had this sort of policy that what he wanted to do was get the US out of the Middle East and replace the US with other, what he saw as forces of stability. And he saw the main force of stability in the Middle East as being Iran. So that's the context from the JCPOA, the, the, the nuclear deal that he and the, the Europeans did with Iran to try and get Iran to, um, to uh, behave itself basically as a responsible country instead of a rogue nation. So one of the, one of the, the theories behind that was that if Iran was freed of all the sanctions and all of its assets were unfrozen, it would be the beneficiary of billions and billions of dollars and it could be, become prosperous. And as it became prosperous, it would become more responsible. What actually ended up happening was Iran said, great, we've got these billions and billions of dollars. We can use them to arm our terrorist proxies through the Middle East and just become more and more powerful. So mm -hmm. instead of Iran becoming less of a threat, it became more of a threat while the US was backing away. So the Arab states were looking for another strong country that they could stand by that would help them with security, would help them with intelligence and so on and so on. And so they settled on Israel. So there's been a lot of under the table context going on. Um, you know, relations have been warming unofficially. So like, there's, a, there's an office of the International Clean Energy um, Organization in Dubai and Israel has an office there. So, which has acted as sort of the de facto Israeli consulate there for a while. Um, there've been various other ties as well as as well as the under the table stuff. But I guess what what really prompted this was the efforts of the Trump administration, especially Jared Kushner, to try and bring this all to a head and make it, it you know it actually bring the normalisation out into the open. And one of the things that that Bahrain and the UAE can hang their hat on is they can say that by 
concluding this agreement, when they get backlash from the other Arab countries, they can say that by concluding this agreement, what they've done is stop Israel extending its sovereignty into parts of the West Bank, which the Trump peace plan was allowing it to do. Now, whether Israel was going to actually do that and to what extent is um, an open question because, you know, there were still negotiations about whether they take the whole 30%, whether they take just the areas where there's um, settlement blocks that everyone accepts in any peace deal the Palestinians, Israel will keep, or whether, you know, it was that in the Jordan Valley. But whatever Israel did, it was bound to be very controversial. And so the UAE can say to its detractors in the Arab world, well, we stop this happening. And so we're sticking up for the Palestinians. But the other thing is that I th think the Gulf states, they, they feel for the Palestinians, but they're not particularly fond of the Palestinians. And they could see that the Palestinians sort of had the veto over all peace moods. And I don't think they thought that the Palestinians should continue to have that veto, given that they've continually refused to accept peace deals, giving them a state, and uh, continue to even refuse to negotiate in the last, you know, few years. And they continue to make unrealistic expectations, like, you know, any Israeli-Palestinian peace deal has to allow millions of descendants of Palestinian refugees to flood Israel, which would, in effect, be the end of Israel as a Jewish state and is completely incompatible with any two-state resolution. And, mm -hmm. and also there's the, the economic benefits. There's the benefits of being allied with a real real te technologically advanced country. You know, the UAE and Bahrain are both very rich countries themselves, so there's a lot of grounds for collaboration. They can get Israeli tourists. Um, there's already been a deal between Israel and the UAE to collaborate on research against COVID-19, for example, and that's only just the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, for all the benefits that countries have um, from, from basically being friends with each other, these, these two countries, these three countries can enjoy that too. And, of course, once people get to know each other better, then instead of this fear and xenophobia, you know, the, the, the Arabs will realise the Israelis aren't so bad and vice versa, and that can lead to peace in the Middle East. So there's, there's other countries as well that are seemingly quite close to making a deal. There's Oman, who's, who had a representative at the signing deal at, at the White House on well, Tuesday at their time, Wednesday our time. Um, there's Sudan, which looks like might be the next cab off the rank after that. They're talking about Morocco, Mauritania, the Comoros Islands, you know, various other uh, Islamic countries in the region that might also be lining up to enjoy the benefits of peace with Israel. And Trump has been... Um, consider also entering into similar deals, uh, but Palestine have been uh, sort of, you know, saying the opposite thing, encouraging people not to follow suit. Uh, do you think that um, other Arab nations might take the lead from what Trump is doing or how do you think the, the voice of Palestine in this and discouraging people from uh, engaging in peace negotiations uh, will be? Well, unfortunately, the Palestinian Authority seems to define itself by what's bad for Israel instead of what's good for its own people. The Saudis are, are in a bit of a, between a bit of a rock and a hard place because there was a deal or there was an offer to Israel in 2002, which was the Saudi peace deal. Um, it was a non-starter because it basically expected that Israel would have to, to, to make all these concessions, including the right of return of refugees, which, as I explained, is a non-starter. And then the Arab world would sort of start looking at but it was, it was the Saudi peace deal. It was written by the Saudis. And one of the tenets of that deal was that there can be no peace between individual Arab countries and Israel until there's a Palestinian state. 
So the Saudis are in a bit of a difficult position. Um, but this deal would never have happened without their without their, their them condoning it, you know, without them blessing it, basically. And, and one of the other signs is that one of the issues of Israel being isolated in the Middle East is that none of the Arab countries allowed Israeli flights like al to fly over their country, their land. So flights to Israel had to take this very circuitous route. And since the peace deal or the normalisation deal has been concluded, the Saudis have said that any Israeli flight to anywhere in the world can overfly Saudi Arabian airspace. So the Saudis might be holding off. Um, the axis of resistance under Iran will certainly hold off, like Yemen, uh, Lebanon, Syria. Uh, you know, Syria and Lebanon are still um, technically, technically at war with Israel. Uh, Iraq's dominated by Iran. So while the current administration is, is more pro-Western, it's also quite weak. So the Iraq, there may be quite some time before there's any move with the Iraqis, but and obviously Jordan and Egypt already have peace deals with Israel. Um, Jordan since 1994 and Egypt since 1978. So, uh, so other Arab countries are sort of looking at it as well. Libya probably not because Libya's got. Well, I mean, Libya's in a civil war of its own and it has an alliance with Turkey, and Turkey's also very uh, antagonistic to Israel, even though Turkey itself does have. Uh, you know, ambassadors with Israel and so on has you know has normalised relations. Um, but most of the other Arab countries, I think they're they're looking at it more positively. Certainly, all the Gulf states and and uh, a lot of the um, northern African states as well. Uh, and Trump has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. There are some that are not making very big a deal of it, um, downplaying the significance of these peace deals. Mm -hmm. Do you think? Could have come about even let's say during Obama's time or even you know one two years ago how significant is this and uh, does it set the tone for hopefully further further peace deals despite yeah, everything else it, happening? it's very significant I, I did see an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying that if if this had happened under a democratic administration you know official Washington would be all over it giving step-by-step -step, um, details of how it all happened and and the people in the Oslo Town Hall would be taking a much keener interest as well. Um, but it probably wouldn't have happened under an Obama administration because the Obama administration prioritised the Palestinians. And there's actually um, a speech that um, John Kerry gave in, I think it was 2016 actually, that's been doing the rounds in Washington where he made it very clear that you know, he, he sort of referred to people in Israel and others saying maybe we can have peace with our country without the Palestinians. And he said under no in no uncertain terms that was never going to happen. You know, the Palestinians had to come first. So, you know, under Obama, it, it wouldn't have happened because he just had a different perspective. And he, if you always seem to be to to suck up to his enemies and, and, and have a whack at his friends. So, you know, so the way he, he conducted himself didn't really engender... Confidence, whereas I think the um, you know the, the Gulf states appreciate um, Trump's approach more. Yeah, so so certainly there there are grounds for for further moves, and you know with a bit of luck by the end of the year we'll see a few other Arab states grasp the nettle, and and the Trump administration Trump administration will certainly deserve a lot of the credit for that. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Jamie. Thanks for sharing your insights. Into this, it is, you know, really momentous. And I suppose in the Australian media landscape, uh, a lot of discussions being taken up by COVID and what's happening, particularly here in Victoria, and um, the significance of this has perhaps not been 
as um, covered as we would have liked and, and hence, you know, platforms like this, we hope to be able to shine a light on what's happening, the positive things um, that are happening on globally and, you know, the cause of peace, um, you know, has certainly been feathered in this case. So thanks very much again. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Earlier this week, an ABC report found that nurses at Melbourne aged care facilities are concerned about the welfare of residents. Western Health clinical nursing consultant Shane Durant said, we've got people who aren't COVID positive, whose mood is severely depressed, who are not eating well, who are not drinking adequately, who are predominantly locked in their rooms, not able to go out for any activities, no leisure activities, and their mobility is declining and their mood is declining. The question is, were any of the residents ever consulted about whether they wanted to effectively be in solitary confinement for months or whether despite the risk of catching and even dying from COVID-19, some may have preferred to take this risk in exchange for freedom? As the Royal Commission into Aged Care showed us, these residents are some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Decisions are generally made for them without allowing them a voice or any real choice. At the end of one's life, we would hope that greater respect would be afforded to the elderly and that they would have as much autonomy and say over their own lives as possible. But once again, they were never consulted on the stringent restrictions imposed on them. In the interview, clinical nursing consultant Shane Durant went on to say, it affects their mood, it affects their desire to eat, their desire to drink. My concern is that although the death rates in residential care patients will start to slow, then we'll see a very long tail of ongoing death rates and they won't be attributed to COVID and they'll drop off the front page of newspapers. Well, that's it for another week. Um, I hope you do tune in tomorrow, Saturday, for George Christensen's Conservative One. Also, remember to like, leave a comment here. Um, don't forget, if you haven't yet, subscribe and donate to the Good Source, goodsource.news. And to leave us on a lighter note, the gift that keeps on giving, here are some recent gaffes from US presidential candidate Joe Biden for your entertainment. COVID has taken this year just since the outbreak, it's taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's a, I mean, you think about it. You know, the rapidly rising uh, um, uh, in with, uh, with uh, I don't know. Uh, I just spoke at, a, at Dartmouth on healthcare at the medical school, or not, I guess I wasn't actually on the campus, but the people from the medical school were at the, I wanna be clear, I'm not going nuts. I'm not sure whether it's a medical school or where the hell I spoke, but it was on the campus. I propose I'm gonna just take the mic